we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. Today, I want to talk about Jesus. I thought we would never do this. I want to talk about talking about Jesus. I'm so excited. I want to talk about getting up in front of a crowd of bona fide Christians and getting them all filled with the goddamn spirit of the Lord. Ooh, sexy. Fill me, Lord. Jesus fuck. Fill me with your holy light. Oh, you'll get filled. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking in tongues, falling on the ground, acting goddamn insane under a big top in middle America. I want to talk about the revival tent. Which I'm so fascinated by, like the theatrics of it all. It is, it's like doing theater every single weekend. It's, it's all my favorite things. Oh yeah. Spectacle, performance. Mesmerism. Dirty tricks. And the spirit of Jesus. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, I fucking, I love the form of the revival tent sermon as like an art form. Mm -hmm. It's got everything I love. How could I not? Performance, spectacle, the awesome power of the divine. It's a scene and a pretty unique blend of a bunch of different types of performance art. Yeah. As well as, you know, serving a pretty wild anthropological function, right? Like Mm -hmm. revival preaching is a super American thing too. In like in every way. And I know, I know I've been hard on Jesus in the past, but I want to look at this from an unbiased perspective. I do. I'm not, I'm not as hard on Jesus as I used to be. It's fine because yeah, there's a whole lot of bad that can be said about charismatic Christian movements for sure. Like for sure. But like, fuck it. I think like this type of thing does some good as well. Not all of it. You know, I hope hell is real because it means Billy Graham is blowing Satan as we speak, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, but yeah, today we're going to talk about the revival tent, where it came from, where it went. What is a fucking Pentecostal? I certainly don't know. You don't know? Okay. It's interesting. A lot more interesting than I thought it was. And we're going to look at some of the biggest names in fire and brimstone and the evolution of fire and brimstone preaching uh, through the ages. It's an art. It is an art. It's absolutely an art. But first, we're going to do what we do and pull a tarot card. Excellent. And which I'm like realizing how beautiful that is and how terrified these preachers would be. Maybe not. Oh, no. Yeah. You know, all of them would be aghast. Oh, scared of tarot? Yeah. Uh Oh, yeah. Why? Maybe not all. It's the devil. Uh, I don't know why it's the devil. 77 cards aren't the devil. (laughs) (laughs) One uh, of them is. One of Yeah. But yeah. Like, what are you going to (laughs) do? All right. What is it? (laughs) I don't even. Wait, is it the devil? No. Okay, that would be really funny. It would be really funny. It's not, it's a harder one than that. What is it? The Five of Swords. Oh, okay. I, hmm. Also known as the Lord of Defeat. One could, it's the Sphere of Deborah. That's kind of the state that revival preaching is in right now, I would say. Oh, I don't know about that. No? I I don't know about that. 
Okay. Yeah. I'd say it's... I mean, I guess I'm not very checked into what's going on in that scene. It could be bigger than ever. Is it bigger than ever? You're going to get your fucking mind blown. Oh. <laughs> I, oh. I keep getting blown this week, which is great. I love blowjobs. There you go. No, it's this fear of Gebra. So does Satan and Billy Graham. It's the fear of Gebra. <laughs> uh, in this... Yeah, I don't have a penis, though. Neither does Billy Graham. I do, however, have a spiritual penis, but that's sure. There. Okay. Anyway, five of swords. It's the sphere of Gebra in the world of Yetzira, the suit of swords, air, the element of air. One could call it the destructive power of words. Mm. You know, it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It's also pyrrhic victory. It's definitely swords being the suit of air has a lot to do with words. Yes. Right. And fire and brimstone preaching the 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 martial aspect of words. Interesting. Well, we will talk about that at the end of the episode. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the Oh, brothers, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Come on, brothers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, fathers, let's go down, down in the river to pray. Okay, so first, we got to start by remembering the Protestant Reformation. How can we forget? I didn't forget. No, 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 you can't I wouldn't forget. dare. If you listen to Nonsense Bazaar, you'll never forget. I don't know how. But it just, I don't know. Big fucking deal. We talk a lot about religious history. We do, and it's a big Even fucking we, deal. we don't know anything. I mean, I think we know more than most people at this point, which isn't, doesn't say much. No. But, you know, it's, my knowledge of everything is uh, potholes, randomly placed potholes that all go very deep, but like in between there's no water. Yeah. No. <laughs> so, the Protestant Reformation, you know, as we've talked about many times, this le- it led to all sorts of people with their new big and batshit ideas about the Bible and Jesus and all this shit. It gave them the ability to just say stuff. And boy, did they ever say stuff. Mm. Fast forward a bit, and you've got a bunch of sickly pale fuckers uh, showing up on the East Coast of the U.S. on a boat, not having any fun, and hanging witches and shit. You know, like you do. But it was the Protestant Reformation that, you know, directly led to the pilgrims. There's a unique 
hellfire aspect to American Christianity. That's sort of important to understand, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Christianity is not a monolith, despite what many non-Christians think. Right. And how they talk about it, too. Right. Like how I used to talk about Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's not a fucking monolith, like, at all. Right. It's kind of wild, in fact. And I think a lot of the negative associations I've always had with Christianity comes from specifically American Christianity. Although that did have a big old fucking ripple effect on the world at large. There's a famous sermon from 1740 that's sort of a stepping stone on the road to middle Americans speaking in tongues and getting all fucking crazy with it. Mm -hmm. It's not the only stepping stone, Lord no, but it's a fun one. So in 1740 in Northampton, Massachusetts, theologian John Edwards wrote the quintessential fire and brimstone bullshit. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is the name of his of his sermon. Here's here's an excerpt. Willow, if you please. Give it the juice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me just juice up a second. Hope no cops are listening. All wicked men's pains and contrivances which they use to escape hell while they continue to reject Christ and so remain wicked men do not secure them from hell one moment. Almost every man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is doing now or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind, how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes will not fail. They hear indeed that there are but few saved and that the greater part of men that have died heretofore are gone to hell. But each one imagines that he forms plans to effect his escape better than the others have done. He does not intend to go to that place of torment, he says within himself, that he intends to take effectual care and to order matters so for himself as to not fail. Mm. You're going to hell. You're going to hell, motherfucker. You're going to fucking hell. Yeah. So you've heard of the Great Awakening, I'll right? I'll see you there. Yeah. I'm not, I don't think we're going to hell. I don't think hell exists. I think hell is a state of mind. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm iffy on like, you know, there might be some. A version of that that dark place exists, the underworld. But I guess hell is a word for I'll, it. I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. I'm going to try real hard to hold a feeling of peace when I go down. You know what I mean? I'm already there. I'm fucking not. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so you've heard of the Great Awakening, right? Yeah. Not that one. The other one. The other one. There's actually two more. We're talking about the first two. Mm -hmm. Then there was the second Great Awakening. Right. Yeah. So Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was written after the first Great Awakening, which began putting emphasis back on purity, piety, getting back to the root of the thing and back away from all the pomp and circumstance back to Jesus. You mm -hmm. know, first back to Jesus movement. The Second Great Awakening was another period of heightened religious fervor and spiritual revival that began in the 1790s and continued into the 1840s in America. It was characterized by passionate preaching, emotional conversions, and a focus on direct personal religious experience. Right? And against this backdrop, revival tent meetings, or camp meetings as they are called. Camp meetings. Yeah, often held outdoors in large tents, became a popular means of spreading religious messages and encouraging community spiritual renewal. Yeah. Right? Bringing people together yeah. under one big roof or yeah. tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the origins of this can be traced back to the frontier regions of the United States, where itinerant preachers traveled from settlement to settlement, 
holding these outdoor camp meetings. And these meetings provided an opportunity for people living in pretty sparsely. So these camp meetings provided a opportunity, a way for people living in sparsely populated areas of the country to come together for religious worship and instruction in the ways of the Lord. Did, I like how circuses basically evolved from the same yeah. tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I'm well, like, hey, this works. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. You know, the frontier setting with its vast open spaces, spaces and sense of communal living fostered an atmosphere conducive to the emotional and spiritual awakening offered by these great awakened camp meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Preachers such as Charles Finney and Billy Hibbard, such an American name. Billy Hibbard. Became renowned for their captivating sermons and their ability to stir the emotions of their audiences. And they traveled all around like, like touring musicians, you know? holding revival meetings in towns and cities across the country. And these meetings, you know, emphasized the tenets of the Second Great Awakening, personal conversion, faith in Jesus, the need for moral and social reform, all this stuff, you know, very fundamentalist, right? But like an old kind of fundamentalism, because a lot of these guys were um, kind of progressive in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. The meetings were held in open fields or on the outskirts of towns, allowing for large crowds without the constraints of a traditional church or you know, people from all over could come and converge in this outdoor party, fucking party tent, right? Right. Uh, it was egalitarian, it was new, and it was very, very American. This is the hip and happening thing to do. It was the only thing to do Literally. a lot of times, right? Yeah. And that contributed to a distinctly American style of religious expression characterized by emotionalism, personal testimony, and strong, strong emphasis on individual faith. And further, the emphasis on personal conversion and the idea of a born-again experience have become central tenets of many evangelical and charismatic denominations in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the—that's kind of the American thing. Right. right. My testimony, you know? I know. I love—oh, those are so much fun to watch, especially the ones that are like, I used to be a witch, and now I'm— like I can't, dude. I my, can't fuck it. It's it's my so, new age testimony. I get such bad like secondhand embarrassment from the testimonies yeah, yeah. of people. It's so like Oh, I don't. I mean, like, I'm happy oh, for them. I'm but not, I'm just like I I it makes me wonder, like, okay, what's the next thing gonna be like after Jesus, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um so Charles Finney, he was a prominent figure in these uh outdoor camp meetings. He was known for a dramatic preaching style and his ability to connect with audiences on like a real emotional level. He was a performer. He often used theatrics and emotional appeals in his sermons, which created a sense of excitement and urgency among his listeners. His preaching methods were controversial at the time, but also highly effective. Just that like the theatrical nature of preaching was not, that was the controversial part. Yeah. Right. Instead of the like staid fucking buttoned up uh, Christianity, Methodism and shit. But Finney is credited with leading thousands of people to conversion and his influence is still felt in evangelical Christianity today. His approach to preaching was influenced by his own experiences as a lawyer. He understood the power of persuasion and used skills to great effect in the pulpit. Finney's sermons were often carefully crafted to appeal to both the intellect and the emotions, using vivid imagery, personal anecdotes, and powerful rhetorical devices to create a sense of immediacy and urgency yeah. in Jesus Christ. Willow, if you please, this was a, a quote about Charles Finney's preaching. Oh, okay. The whole community was stirred. Religion was the topic of conversation. Religion was the topic of conversation in the house, in the shop, 
in the office and on the street. The only theater in the city was converted into a livery stable, the only circus into a soap and candle factory. Grog shops were closed, the Sabbath was honored, the sanctuaries were thronged with happy worshipers. A new impulse was given to every philanthropic enterprise. The fountains of benevolence were opened and men lived to good. It's a hell of a performer. Oh, yeah. Man, to can, town. man can talk. God damn. The art of public speaking, it, it really is a thing. I know. It's, it's You know, to be able to hold a crowd under your, uh, yeah. It's a shame that as a podcaster, I don't have that ability. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of editing. Lots of editing. So Finney also had something called the anxious seat. Oh boy. <laughs> For those, which those considering becoming Christians could sit to receive prayer. And like, okay. so like kind of have like the, the community yeah. focused on and like, you know, bring this, bring this young feller into the, the hands of the Lord Remember and shit. Uh, the ascension chair. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of the same fucking thing. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, Charles Finney was a perfectionist. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of his disciples was none other than the nose. Yep. <laughs> the nose himself, John Humphrey Nose of silverware and sex cult fame. Yes, go the listen. Oneida community. Yes, go listen to our Oneida community series to learn more about perfectionism and shit. I'm proud of those ones. Yeah, dude, you did yeah. a great job on that. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Extremely interesting people. The yeah. whole perfectionism, like the thing in, uh, I guess, Methodism. Yeah, very interesting. There's a lot of Christianity out there that's all very different. Also, we got to remember that these large group demonstrations of faith were not just Sunday service. This shit mm -hmm. was entertainment oh, yeah. and community. There was no mass communication. And the one thing binding people together and keeping them from dying of loneliness out there in America was the power of Jesus. Amen. Maybe I should start a church. There you go. <laughs> no, I won't. And just remember. The church of nonsense. Every day. Every day, just be thankful that I'm merely a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping us safe from the apocalypse for yet another day. Well, we don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and these events were not merely confined to formal rituals and sermons either. They were intricate social gatherings that did a lot of social and community functions. You know, there was music. There was the emotional preaching. There was all your neighbors gathered together. There was food. There was, it was a, a real thing that bound people up as a community. Good old church potluck. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't just the words spoken, but the passion, conviction, and raw emotions. They didn't have TV. That's where you get the emotions. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, and these, that's how <clears throat> and why these sermons kind of evolved into not just reading from the Bible, but whole performance. Yeah. This is also... Like before television and movies too. So like your entertainment, the way that you deal with complex things and, and project them onto stories is through characters and books, through yeah. characters in the Bible, through the stories in the Bible. Exactly. So it's like almost a way to, you're not going to see a movie, but when the preacher is up there spinning a beautiful story with his words and talking about, you know, what happened to these characters. Exactly. In your head, you're almost imagining yourself there as these characters. How does it relate to your life? And it plays a whole movie out in your head. Right. So exactly. it's like how when you go to a movie and you get all emotional and feel something it does that same thing absolutely and i think that that's a aspect of sermon writing and preaching that i think is often overlooked especially like especially like for uh from like the non-christian point of view in the 21st century i think we tend to think of sermons as 
just a lot of like, oh, you'll go to hell if you're gay. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, which isn't true. It's it might a, be. Well, it's in, <laughs> no, some, just... in some places. <laughs> um, but it, at its core, a lot of like sermon writing is is telling a story from the Bible is telling a fucking story, a story of yep. a cultural touchstone with your own spin on it and shit within, you know, a sort of framework of expectations of morality and and shit like that. You can there's an implicit trust in the preacher. Yeah, so it wasn't just storytelling that was a big part of these camp meetings too, but also music, singing, hymns, and communal singing, right? Harmonious blending of all the community's voices and worship of life and the world and shit it just it also reminds me of like the traveling snake oil salesman archetype or like yeah i don't know that something wicked this way comes or the man shows up to town and it's like hello everybody come to my tent well yeah and everybody's sort of put in the spell absolutely because it is that yeah right it is that it's and it's also like that i don't know which came first you know what i mean like the traveling showman Mm-hmm. Or the traveling preacher, or if it's just like part of the same, if that's just what happens on at, in the frontier, right? Like that might, it might just be a an emergent property of geography. Yeah. Right. Regardless, I, I bet. Yeah. I like, I, I would have loved to go to like one of these camp meetings out in the frontier out in Kansas or something. Mm-hmm. I bet it was a beautiful time. Yep. Depending on the town. Right. Some towns are nice. Would be one of those. People like writhing on the ground. No, this is before, way before that. Okay, okay. Way before that. This is just the power of of words. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, the writhing on the ground is too, but that comes later. That's early 1900s. We're getting to that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Also a very American thing. Mm -hmm. And the miraculous healings. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're getting to that. Mm -hmm. We're close to that. This is like, yeah, I believe this is Methodism generally, which is an American brand of Protestantism. But yeah, it was a big part of the communities out there. And in the, we just got interrupted for a very long time. It is how we're trying to pick back up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I'm back. We're back. I'm, so back I'm just trying to remember what the fuck I was, I was talking about and already said. Yeah, it was just a, it's, it's a, fun, a community function that bound together these communities. It offered a welcome respite from the mundane routine of daily life. People look forward to this shit as an opportunity to social, socialize, interact, and like get away from their troubles. There's laughter, storytelling, you know, philosophizing. Well, yeah, it's almost like once you enter that tent and like are within those walls, you're functionally in in a liminal space for a short period of time. Like it is a respite from your exactly. everyday life. Like it's, exactly. it's a whole different universe under there. Yeah, there's some, like all your, and I mean, this is sort of the function of religion and society is that like you're you're all Christians during the service, right? Like you're not the ostensibly the terrestrial squabbles or relationships or whatever are now superseded by something bigger mm-hmm. which allows you to put all that shit aside for a little while and just be people together yep. right and that's like a really important thing for a community to have i feel mm-hmm. and like also you know this was a lot harder of a time to live in too and that was even more necessary well i don't even want to say it's more necessary because pretty fucking necessary now always kind of have it but yeah it was a communal fucking safety net in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and a reassurance all right so now they set the backdrop on that <clears throat> by the time by the time the 1900s rolled around not by the time 1900 rolled around america had done the america thing yeah and this had sort of gotten a bit more extreme 
Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to be the portion where we talk about some individual people. And unfortunately, a lot of these people, they deserve whole fucking episodes, but we're not going to give them give them whole episodes right here. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to talk about a few of uh, the the big names in the revival circuit. Excellent. Hey, day. So first fellow we're going to talk about is a guy by the name of Billy Sunday, born William Ashley Sunday on November 19th, 1862. So he didn't just pick Billy. He didn't just pick Sunday as his last name. Just like that was his last. That name. was his last name. Just like Mark Prophet. <laughs> Mark Prophet. Yeah, Billy Sunday, which is the best name for a yeah, you Mister Sunday. Yeah, it's ridiculous. He was a professional baseball player before becoming a itinerant preacher. He knew how to play the game. He did, and he became one of the most influential American evangelists of the early twentieth century. And all right, so he, he his father died in the Civil War. His mother struggled to support the family. Billy and his brother... I imagine that happened to a lot of families. A lot of families. Yep. Uh, Billy and his brother were placed in an orphanage, but he found an escape with his passion for baseball. And he was really good at it. So he got... He caught the eye of professional teams and he soon made a name for himself playing for the Chicago White Stockings. Then the White Sox. Then the Cubs. Got it. Yeah, he was a good player. But then um, along the way... He discovered the power of Jesus. Why it was, it was because of his wife. He met, he fell in love with a woman, mm-hmm. Helen Amelia Nell Thompson, who was a a dairy heiress. She was a, she was a Chicago milk heiress. <laughs> a dairy heir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and although Sunday was immediately smitten with her, both had serious ongoing relationships that were close to being engaged. Mm. Yeah. Well, also, and her father thought that baseball players um, were transient ne'er-do-wells. Oh, those no good baseball players. Who were unstable and destined to be misfits once they were too old to play. But Sunday won her over and uh, converted to Presbyterianism because she was a Presbyterian. And this very famous, very famous preacher said on multiple occasions, she was a Presbyterian, so I am a Presbyterian. Had she been a Catholic, I would have been a Catholic because I was hot on the trail of Nell. Okay, he, he would have done whatever the fuck she did. Those are very different brands of Christianity. Whoa. That's interesting. Well, this dude was, his style was dynamic and theatric, theatrical. Well, that makes sense if it was romantic love that led him into spirituality to begin with. Yeah, I mean, there's a story about his conversion and shit, but I don't know. There's That quote sticks out to me as like, oh, okay, I, I understand. But- that could also have been his way of, sorry for interrupting, that could have also been his way of just expressing how much he loves his wife That's and true. how much he wanted That's to also be true. with her. I mean, this he's not necessarily a good guy. Yeah. Billy Sunday. <laughs> that doesn't surprise <laughs> I, <you> me. Know, <laughs> yeah, he was a real like firebrand. One of the things that he his sermons targeted more than anything else was the evils of alcohol and the importance of personal salvation, of course, but it made him a f- central figure in the prohibition movement. Mm-hmm. In 1907, journalist Lindsay Dennison complained that Billy Sunday preaches the old, old doctrine of damnation. In spite of his conviction that the truly religious man should take his religion joyfully, he gets his results by inspiring fear and gloom in the hearts of sinners. The fear of death, with torment beyond it, intensified by examples of the frightful deathbeds of those who have carelessly or obdurately put off salvation until it's too late. It is with this mighty menace that he drives sinners into the fold. 
a mighty menace. The mighty menace of fear. Yeah. So throughout his career, Sunday held revival meetings across the country, drawing millions to his events. His ability to use the media to his advantage helped him reach an even wider audience. His approach to evangelism was innovative for his time, combining the traditional message of Christianity with a flair for showmanship and direct engagement with contemporary social issues. And we actually have some recordings of old Billy Sunday. Mm. This is from 1929. Oh, boy. Yeah. I wonder if his voice sounds like what I'm imagining. It might. It might not. This is uh, Evangelist Billy Sunday Warns America, 1929. Billy Sunday burns up the backsliding world. Civilization and society rests on morals. Morals rest on religion. Religion rests on the Bible and faith in God and in Jesus Christ. The Bible doesn't condemn any man because of his wealth. The Bible says the man that don't provide for his family is worse than an infidel. According to our standard of gold and silver, Abraham was worth a billion and a half of dollars. David was worth three billion. Solomon was worth five billion. Solomon could have hired Andrew Carnegie for a butler, J. Pierpont Morgan to cut his lawn, and Andrew Mellon for a chauffeur, and John D. to black his boots. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. America needs to be taken down to God's bathhouse and the hose turned on her. And the time isn't far distant when the wheels of God's judgment are going to go sweeping through this old God-hating world. And I want to take a pledge in this audience to join me in a pledge that you will never rest until this old God-hating, Christ-hating, whiskey-soaked, Sabbath-breaking, blaspheming, infidel, bootlegging old world is bound to the cross of Jesus Christ by the golden chains of love. Wow. This is also... Uh, sounds like a cartoon character. He looks like a cartoon character, too. That's like a full... That's a that's a talkie right there. 1929. Like, that's a... There's video of his ass, too, and he's, like, very animated. He looks like a cartoon. Uh, well, he better be, considering his message. Right. You know, that's not a message that you deliver lightly. No. Uh, yeah, the holiest of all men are rich as fuck, basically, is what he was saying. It's that prosperity gospel. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. You know who else is rich as all fuck? Who that? Billy Sunday. <laughs> Surprise. So he started his career in 1896, and over the next 12 years, Sunday preached in approximately 70 towns, most of them in Iowa and Illinois. He referred to these towns as the kerosene circuit because unlike Chicago, most were not yet electrified. Yeah. Towns often booked Sunday meetings informally, sometimes by sending a delegation to hear him preach and then telegraphing him when he was holding services somewhere else. He also took advantage of his reputation as a baseball player to generate advertising for his meetings. In, 19 mm -hmm. in 1907 in Fairfield, Iowa, Sunday organized local businesses into two baseball teams and scheduled a game between them. He came dressed in his professional uniform, and played on both sides. Played on both sides there, Billy. Oh, yes. Although baseball was his primary means of publicity, he also once hired a circus giant to serve as an usher. Fuck yeah. Okay. And so he got started getting pretty damn well-known. And uh, during a campaign in Pr Pittsburgh, he averaged an impressive $217 per sermon, which was significantly more than the average, than the annual income of the average worker at the time. Between 1908 and 1920, Sunday and his family amassed over a million dollars, a stark contrast to the less than 14000 uh, earned by an average worker in the same period. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And he, like, it's always, like, talked about as uh, 
Well, he also gave a bunch of money to charity and shit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He gave, he gave, they like, all do. He gave like 50 grand to charity. Right. <laughs> of his massive hoard of wealth. Yeah. And his influence extended far beyond the pulpit, earning him a place among the social, economic, and political elite of his time. Oh, good for him. He was friends with prominent businessmen, dined with politicians, including Presidents Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, and befriended figures like Herbert Hoover and John D. Rockefeller Jr. Hmm. Yeah. So, a little bit different than the old Charles Finney method, right? This dude's talking about how evil alcohol is and how good money is and shit, and like doing all this theatrical bullshit. He was, he's like the earliest dude we have recordings of, of that like golden age of the revival tent shit. Mm-hmm. Next, Amy Semple McPherson. This lady. I love a three namer. This lady is a fucking trip. Yes. But to learn about her, first we got to learn about Pentecostalism. Oh, good. Because I still don't know what that is. Pentecost, you speaking in tongues. That's Pentecostalism. That's it. it that's not it, but that's the big. The big thing. That's the big thing. See, Pentecostalism is the Christian movement that is inextricably linked from uh, to the revival tent. They're not the only ones to do it at all, but they did it big. And They're the they, ones who perfected it. They continue to do it big, and like and and like the fire and brimstone communal potluck revival tent. This denomination is essentially American. So, Pentecostalism emerged from the holiness movement within Methodism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, mm-hmm. which emphasized a direct personal experience with God through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostalism is characterized by a focus on the supernatural gifts of the Spirit such as speaking in tongues, healing, and prophecy. Uh, That's what makes Pentecostalism Pentecostalism. It's the the gifts of the Spirit. I think that's the, the term they use. It's something like that, which speaking in tongues is usually is the first manifestation of that. So they see speaking in tongues and healing and all this shit as the evidence of the Spirit of God working in the world. Mm, right? Interesting. Very interesting. Like Pentecostalism is a mystic. Uh, yes, that is very yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mystic sect of Christianity, and it, uh, it and it's really fucking new too. Um, in the 1800s, some Methodists aimed to rekindle interest in Christian perfection or holiness, a concept that, according to uh, Randall Balmer, religion expert, had, had lost its prominence as mainstream Methodists Methodists climbed the social ladder. Methodism is a hard word for me to say. Methodists. Yeah. Yeah. Ists. It's making my. Uh, DS or have a stroke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mainstream Methodists climbed the social ladder ladder, <laughs> <laughs> ladder to middle class respectability. The push for a holiness revival began within the Methodist Episcopal Church, though it eventually transcended denominational lines, leading to the formation of several Wesleyan holiness churches like the Free Methodist Church, Church of the Nazarene, Church of God, the Salvation Army, and the Wesleyan Methodist Church. You know, I wonder if one of the reasons why there's so many different ones is because, like, you know, the people that are forming their churches were not originally in the one that they formed. Like, that's not the first one that they ever went to. They were in some other guy's church first, but now they want to go and start their own. They develop their own ideas. Exactly. So it's like, I don't want to step on this other guy's toes, so I'm going to call my thing something a little bit different. Yeah, basically. (laughs) You know? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... Whereas with like Catholicism, you've got like St. John's Cathedral, mm-hmm. S- this other saint's cathedral. It, it's yeah, it's le- there's a lot less individual expression. 
So Phoebe Palmer, an American Methodist, stood out as a key figure in promoting holiness. Through her public speaking and writing, she introduced, quote, altar theology, a concept that presented a shorter way to achieve complete sanctification by metaphorically placing oneself on an altar, essentially sacrificing your worldly desires. Interesting. Um, yeah. Palmer argued that as long as a Christian remained on this altar, maintaining faith that God willed their sanctification, they could trust God to make it happen. Historian Jeffrey Williams notes that Palmer framed sanctification as an immediate act realized through faith. And this perspective, favoring a sudden achievement of Christian perfection over a gradual process, marks a core characteristic of the Wesleyan holiness movement. Yeah. So yeah. it's not... It's it's like all of a sudden. Right. It's yeah, it's immediate and total, right? Which is by just deciding that it is so and and trusting God to make there. it. Yeah. Which that's kind of is different than it it's interesting, right? I mean, they're not really wrong. Right, exactly. Exactly. They're not. And you can see sort of how this emerges from like the perfectionists mm -hmm. and shit, right? If you have full faith, you don't need uh, you know, a gradual process or a slow decay. You could have a quick transition. If you are really fully open to that idea and like believe it. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally do think that just in general, some change happens immediately and totally if it's powerful enough, you know? Yeah. Although I do think about like, you know, when I quit cigarettes, that's still, that was months and months of thinking about it, considering it sure. leading up to it. But then if you do have that moment where it's like, okay. Well, and, and you also sometimes have moments where you realize that like, oh, I've been doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. I see it. And then you don't do it anymore. Yep. Yeah. And just like that, you never do it again. They, I mean, there's so consequently, many holiness churches expect their pastors to declare they've attained complete sanctification also, which like it, it, that's not necessarily great to believe that the teacher is a perfect. Being, <laughs> no. Right. Um, Nobody is. Yeah. A defining emphasis of the holiness movement is the complete destruction and eradication of the sin nature. Uh, Where's the fun in that? Right. H. Orton Wiley, the premier holiness systematic theologian, quotes R.T. Williams explaining, It is folly to try to pass as a believer in holiness and at the same time question its doctrine of eradication. There cannot be such a thing as holiness in its final analysis without the eradication of sin. Holiness and suppression are incompatible terms. The old man and counteraction make a pale and sickly kind of holiness doctrine. It is holiness and eradication, or holiness not at all. Another key aspect of the holiness movement is adherence to Wesley's definition of sin. And Wesley stated in a letter, Nothing is sin, strictly speaking, but a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. Therefore, Every voluntary breach of the law of love is sin, and nothing else if we speak properly. To strain the matter farther is to make way for Calvinism. There may be 10,000 wandering thoughts and forgetful intervals without any breach of love, though not without transgressing the Adamic law, but Calvinists would fain confound these altogether. Let love fill your heart, and it is enough. Live in the light of love. Yeah. Which, you know, maybe... Oh, I'm basking in it. Kind of simplistic, but like... Yeah. Um, and this, so this is what Pentecostalism emerged out of. So Charles Fox Parham, 
Parham was a key figure in the birth of Pentecostalism. He was a holiness evangelist who championed divine healing and had roots in Methodism. In 1900, he founded Bethel Bible School near Topeka, Kansas, advocating that speaking in tongues was the definitive sign of receiving the Holy Spirit's baptism. This belief crystallized on January 1st, 1901, when his students experienced speaking in tongues following a prayer session. Parham himself had this experience later and integrated it into his preaching, suggesting it meant missionaries could bypass learning new languages, viewing it as xenoglossia. You don't need to learn how to speak Spanish. Everyone can learn this language if they just let you, Jesus into their heart. You already know Spanish. You're, you just don't know it yet. Right. It's the Lemurian light language and shit. Yeah. Which is, I. that's just... A really interesting thing, because then it would mean like, did they did these students think they were talking to each other? Mm-hmm. Right. There was an interesting case in Horns of the Goddess, a Dolores Cannon book, where like a woman was under deep trance and she was saying like some random glossolalia shit. But then they had like a a scholar of languages listen to the recording, yeah, and it sounded like an old Irish like oh, dialect. And when they translated what she said, it was like some some weird shit oh that's wild yeah i wonder how much truth there is to that but Me too it, interesting big if true yeah big yeah. if true <laughs> so one of um charles fox parnham's students was a dude named william j seymour he was an african-american preacher from texas and he took parham's ideas and went to los angeles and at his church something called the azusa street revival happened it, which was the beginning of modern Pentecostalism. It took place in Los Angeles from 1906 to 1915. Uh, on the night of April 9th, 1906, Seymour and seven men were, quote, waiting on God on Bonnie Bray Street, which sounds like a fucking country song. Yes. Um, quote, Willow, if you please. When suddenly, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. And... The other seven men began to speak in tongues and shout out loud, praising God. The news quickly spread. The city was stirred. Crowds gathered. Services were moved outside to accommodate the crowds who came from all around. People fell down as they approached and attributed it to God. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the sick were said to be healed. Yeah, so shit just went like fucking wild in Los Angeles for a bit. With people like falling down as they're approaching, right? Like... Yeah. This like out like crowds moving from inside to outside to accommodate all the people like all these people showing up and like all this crazy shit happening divine like fucking divine madness. Yeah. Right? I bet there's music involved too. Oh yeah. Cuz I mean this was led by a black preacher. Oh yeah. Right? Like so it's it, good music. Yeah. Yeah, and like that's that is an interesting thing about Pentecostalism is that it came from like an integrated church in los angeles mm -hmm. in the early 1900s um and that's sort of like the birth of modern pentecostalism is this, right is this period and also like so when did the phonograph come around oh earlier than that yeah yeah so it's like either you're listening to a record or you're seeing live music but it's not the same as today where we can access music at the touch of our fingertips and right. it's so easy to just like listen to music whenever we want to have it be more of like a rarity or a special thing oh makes yeah it even more impactful when you're there seeing it live too yeah exactly uh the, the gramophone 1887 okay yeah so uh key features of the azusa street revival were emphasis on the holy spirit they believed that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a vital experience for all Christians. They taught that the Holy Spirit gives believers power for witnessing, for witnessing, 
healing and speaking in tongues, and I believe witnessing is prophecy. Big on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is one of the most controversial aspects of this whole fucking thing. The revivalists believed that speaking in tongues was a sign of being filled with the Spirit of God. Yes. Yeah. That is the sign. I would say perhaps that divine healing is the most controversial Mm-hmm. aspect so revivalists also believed in the power of god to heal the sick they prayed for the sick and testified to many miraculous healings and it also brought people together from different races and backgrounds and even faiths at the time since pentecostalism was very new right and these revivalists believed that all christians are one in christ and that everybody can experience the power of god right which like you know there's a decent chunk of that that i think is a good thing mm-hmm Right. Um, It's super important to understand that Pentecostalism is also a very broad set of Christian belief. Like there's all types of different Pentecostals within Pentecostalism. Yeah. The first generation of Pentecostal believers faced immense criticism and ostracism from other Christians, most vehemently from the holiness movement from which they emerged. Alma White, leader of the Pillar of Fire Church, a holiness Methodist denomination, wrote a book against the movement titled Demons and Tongues in 1910. Were they doing like snake handling too? That's not that big of a thing. Snake handling is some like extreme Pentecostal sect. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, you know, all you have to do is have a few extremists and then all of a sudden they become the poster child for the movement. So exactly. it's like, oh, they're all, they're evil over there. They're playing with snakes. It's a very. Speaking in tongues. The speaking in tongues is a part of Pentecostalism writ large. Right. The snake handling is a very small number of Pentecostals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a part of the broader Mm-hmm. belief system it's fucking extreme <laughs> i'm sure it's something that any like the people that were scared of it probably pointed to yeah i don't know when the snake handling started i don't either yeah um i, I wonder how but that's for another day yeah yeah i mean this is this episode is very broad on all things just to be clear like we're not going this is not a in-depth look at any of this shit because i bit off more than i could chew <laughs> So it goes. Yeah. But yeah. So Alma White wrote this book called Demons and Tongues in 1910. She called Pentecostal tongues, quote, satanic gibberish and Pentecostal services, quote, the climax of demon worship. And I mean, if the snake handling had started by that point, I understand. Started in 1910. Okay. So that's. Well, in America, there's other instances yeah, of yeah, people worshiping serpents. And so, stuff. yeah. So I can see why she would see it as the climax of demon worship. <laughs> Famous holiness Methodist preacher W.B. Godby characterized those at Azusa Street as, quote, Satan's preachers, jugglers, necromancers, enchanters, magicians, and all sorts and all sorts of mendicants. Which sounds fucking sick. To Dr. D.G. Campbell Morgan, Pentecostalism was, quote, the last vomit of Satan. <laughs> While Dr. R.A. Torrey thought it was emphatically not of God and founded by a sodomite. <laughs> which all makes Pentecostalism way cooler than I thought it was. Yeah, whoa. <laughs> Pentecostalism is also an evangelical faith, emphasizing the reliability of the Bible and the need for the transformation of an individual's life through Jesus. Like other evangelicals, Pentecostals generally adhere to the Bible's divine inspiration and inerrancy, the belief that the Bible and the original manuscripts in which it was written is without error. Yes, this is the true word. Yes, and... Pentecostals emphasize the teaching of the, quote, full gospel or four-square gospel. Ah. The term four-square refers to the four fundamental beliefs of Pentecostalism. Jesus saves, according to John 3.16, baptizes with the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2.4, heals bodily, according to James 5.15, 
and is coming again to receive those who are saved, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Wow. And here's a clip from a Pentecostal service in the mid-1970s. Excellent. Reverend Bobby Akers is holding a revival in his holiness church in Hillsville, Virginia. He believes the power of the Holy Ghost can reveal the hand of God. The Bible says, praise him with strained... People are freaking out. They're flipping the fuck out. They're shaking all over the place. They're dancing. these people yeah dude hey you know what it's fucking sick i like, like the music. that's fucking sick dude these I, people are going nuts yeah i love it no people don't even dance like that at concerts anymore no dude i it's true it's fucking true i, I like the last few shows i've been to i've been very disappointed with the lack of dancing honestly like well, I mean, I would say the fucking, you know, a rave is a fucking uh, instance of divine madness, too. Yes. Right? Like, that's that's what's up. And we'll get to why I think that's what's up later on. But, like, you get a bunch of fucking people losing their shit together in a safe place. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fucking sick. That's that looks weird. like a lot of fun. Yeah. So, all right. Amy Semple McPherson. Semple. 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 She was not simple. Simple. She's a complicated figure, dude. She deserves her own episode at some point. Excellent. So she was born Amy Elizabeth Kennedy on October 9th, 1890 in Ontario, Canada. Her journey from a farm girl to a pioneering force in Pentecostalism is a story of charisma, controversy, and unyielding zeal. So her religious career took off after uh, marrying Robert Simple, who was a missionary, and she embarked on a mission trip to China. Old Robert caught a case of the malaria and croaked. And McPherson returned to the United States. Yes, but she brought that old-time religion with her. Well, yeah, I mean, she That's was... That's so interesting. Same with Billy Sunday, right? Who, like, started getting into preaching and religion through his spouse. Perhaps. Perhaps. With, Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and McPherson joined her mother, Mildred, working for the Salvation Army back in uh, in the U.S. While in New York City, she met accountant Harold Stewart McPherson, and they were married in 1912 and moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and had a son, Rolf Potter Kennedy McPherson. Sick name, Rolf Potter. Makes me wonder if there's any connection. Any connection? Because, like, also maybe the Ken- my my Kennedy side of the family is from Providence. Well, I just read the next sentence of the script, and it's making me question it even more. I know, I know, <laughs> dude, for real. But but the our Kennedys are also from Canada. Uh huh. To, to Providence. Okay. Yeah. Um, Highly possible then. Right. So during this maybe. time. McPherson felt as though she denied her, quote, calling to go preach because she struggled with emotional distress and obsessive compulsive disorder, which, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, perhaps, I don't know. I Kennedy's an extremely common name. I'm not related to the president, so I'm probably not related to her either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she would, but it would cause her to like fall into weeping spells, weeping and prayer spells, because that, again, OCD is the fucking disease of the clergy, right? 
1914, she fell seriously ill with appendicitis, and McPherson later stated that after a failed operation, she heard a voice asking her to go preach. She accepted the voice's challenge, she said, and was able to turn over in bed without any pain. <laughs> I'm just, I'm giggling because I'm imagining, like, if she was Tiny Tim, the voice would have said, go preach in the sissy voice. <laughs> Sometimes God gives you a message and you just can't ignore it. It's true. But yeah, I told her to go preach. Yeah. In 1915, uh, I forget where her, her husband, her husband was away. And so he returned home and discovered that she had left him and taken the children. And then a few weeks later, he received a note inviting him to go join her in her, her event, evangelistic work. He declined. So she ended up divorcing Harold. Yeah. I'm good for her. Yeah. Moving to Los Angeles and starting the Angelus Temple later uh, known as the Foursquare Church. And this woman is so fucking interesting. Her preaching was bombastic, flamboyant, dramatic. And like, this is in the early 1900s, and she was a woman too, right? Mm -hmm. She utilized theatrical sermons complete with costumes and props. Oh, yes. Yeah. To convey biblical stories in a manner both engaging and accessible. Her flair for drama and innate ability to connect with people propelled her to celebrity status. The Angeles Temple, her Los Angeles megachurch, regularly drew crowds in the fucking over 5,000s. Wow. I think it was like a 5,300-seater. I'm telling you, the power of a good storyteller cannot be overstated. Yeah, and I mean, it's also a huge component of her celebrity status was the faith healing that happened on her tours and her megachurch. That was a huge component of uh. her uh, of her preaching. However... I don't think she was a grifter in that way. Mm -hmm. I don't like I, it seemed like that was just a sort of belief amongst Pentecostals. Yeah. Right. And so it was like she would come to town, preach a bunch, and then faith healing would happen. Sort of seems like more than her. I know I, I, she did like lay on hands too, though. But like that's different than like faking removing cancer from someone. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, it kind of, it also goes in line with like the Christian science movement, which was founded in 1879. So I imagine it's still like pretty popular around this time. And that yeah, exactly. also popularized the idea of, you know, not going to the doctor and using exactly like, uh, getting your medicine through God. Exactly. And like, so that wasn't an uncommon idea at the time. Honestly, there are some ailments that could definitely be cured by getting loose with it for a bit yeah you know go what I mean? sweat it out go jump around to some fucking yeah relax a little bit I, honestly though yeah. like there are some ailments that could absolutely be cured by that yeah not fucking cancer but you no know. and also amy was sexy like if you look at pictures of her and shit the dresses she wore and stuff that helps draw a crowd yeah like she had this absurd level of like charm and charisma and and shit she was also divorced too in the early 1900s which is a huge thing and she was divorced also because she wanted to get divorced right do you know what i mean not like it oh, was very yeah. like modern that and progressive a, a silky white robe mm -hmm. and it's like it's body hugging too mm -hmm. the picture that i'm looking at yeah dude like literally she was a fucking sexy preacher Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's wild. And she was theatrical and truly passionate. And I'm, I'm truly unsurprised she had OCD. She was also fucking insane. Like, I do want to do a full episode on her someday because she's fucking crazy. She's an insane person in the best way, kind of. Yeah. There's a lot of bad to her too, but like her insanity was kind of in the best way. Then the damnedest thing happened. Yeah. Yeah. She fucking disappeared for a month. <laughs> 
<laughs> she just straight up fucking disappeared. Um, on May 18th, 1926, McPherson vanished after going for a swim at Ocean Park Beach in Venice, California, leading to an extensive and highly publicized search. For over a month, the public was left in suspense about her fate. McPherson was a national figure at this point, and her disappearance sparked widespread speculation, prayer vigils, and even false sightings. I think I saw her. Well, shit. I think they did see her, though. It wasn't. They might have, yeah. yeah. The search involved both law enforcement and volunteers, with the mystery deepening as days passed without any trace of her. Then, in June 1926, McPherson resurfaced in Douglas, Arizona claiming to have been kidnapped, drugged, and held captive in a desert shack by two women and a man. Catholics, oh. the lot of them. <laughs> Those damn Catholic spies. Yeah. God damn it. She said that she'd managed to escape her captors and wandered through the desert until she found help. The story of her kidnapping and miraculous escape was met with skepticism, leading to a sensational investigation and subsequent legal proceedings. I believe her. Critics pointed to inconsistencies in her story and speculated about alternative explanations for her disappearance. Some suggested she had run off with a lover or needed a break from the pressures of her ministry and concocted the kidnapping story as a cover. Yeah, she needed some inspiration for her next uh, yeah. round of theater. I mean, it's uh, it's kind of clear what happened, but I forget if I wrote it or not. The Los Angeles Police Department conducted a thorough investigation, which culminated in a grand jury inquiry. The case was fraught with contradictions and witness testimonies that both supported and challenged McPherson's account. The media circus only added to the spectacle with every detail of the investigation and McPherson's personal life being scrutinized by the public. Ultimately, the grand jury failed to indict McPherson on charges of obstruction of justice or fabricating a kidnapping story, setting insufficient evidence. However, the ordeal left a lasting impact on McPherson's public image, which never really recovered from this episode. There's also allegations of links to the KKK, of which she repeatedly denounced from the pulpit, but who also kept donating to her and publicly allying themselves with. Oh, Miss Miss Annie, Amy. Yeah. Amy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Allegations of affairs and other other unsavory behavior haunted her. Yeah, lo, like I found, I didn't have time to look enough into it, but I found like some podcaster, I don't know if he was like a atheist or he didn't like amy Sample mcpherson and he was saying that there was like suicides around that case and shit like there's some there's some weird shit very interesting very fucking it it seems like she ran off with a lover she was had a very close friendship with a married man at the time and she was also married to a third husband huh another place says that um she resurfaced in mexico oh really interesting shit i don't know i might have gotten it wrong who knows what uh what source was that? Oh, it was just on the Wikipedia page. Oh, then why did I write Douglas, Arizona? Oh, no. Okay. That, because it's on the border of Mexico. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she could have been walking so through not, Mexico. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wrong. Dude, that fucking, that silk dress with the cross. Like, what the fuck? Come on now. Oh, Amy. Come on now, Amy. Wow, what she, an interesting story. She did a lot of other stuff, too. Like, she... um her Wikipedia page is massive. It's massive. I'm not uh, yeah, going to yeah, read yeah, it yeah. right now. Right. No, like she's getting a full episode. Oh, that's so interesting. H.L. Mencken um, had been covering the case. I just posted a, a quote of his earlier. Interesting. Yes. Well, I wish that you might know the joy of it. The preaching the gospel. The seeing the thousands wending their way down the altars to kneel at the feet of Jesus, the crucified. And now... After all of these years, 
They've come to crown our labors, beautiful Angela's Temple. This magnificent building, the largest seating capacity church in the American continent, where we have 16,000 members, a Sunday 4,500 children, 800 branch churches, and the work spreading. Today, on the first day, Los Angeles, California, with its thousands of loving friends and these great armfuls of roses on this my anniversary. I love her voice. Yep. Very bubbly. Yeah. Amy Semple McPherson, uh, she died from a seemingly accidental accidental overdose of sleeping pills in 1944 at the age of 53. And it seems like it was accidental, not suicide. Though, I don't know. You know? Yeah. You never know. It seems like she had a very complicated life. She was a very complicated person, life. dude. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting character. When Amy uh, McPherson died, her estate was worth only 14 grand. Despite, right? Like, that's not a lot. Yeah. That's like not a fucking lot. She had to pay somebody off. No. Or or she was literally, or she literally just had OCD and truly believed in God. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If you really believe your message, then you're not going to feel right um, sitting on all that money. Right. Which I imagine also probably led to her being taken advantage of by people. Oh, yeah. Like the clan and shit. No, it's true. If she really did have like an open, good heart and, you know, was like a quirky person. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Interesting character. I would really need to learn much more about her to actually make any judgments or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another Pentecostal faith healer was a feller named Jack Coe. This fucking, this fucking guy. Moving on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we've got a <laughs> yeah. lot more to get through. No. We, yeah. She deserves her own episode she for does. sure. So we got to move on. Jack Coe doesn't, you know, he's just no. a guy I'm going to mention. Jack Coe is firebrand in the world of tent revivalism, prominent figure in the mid-20th century's healing revival movement. Born in Oklahoma City in 1918, also marred by, early life was marred by hardship and illness which set the stage for later claims of divine healing. His style was unapologetically brash, his preaching fervent with the promise of miraculous cures for the unfaithful. Oh, yeah, Jack Coe. Uh, he rose to fame in the 40s and 50s, touring the United States with one of the largest gospel tents of the time, capable of seating thousands. His meetings were theatrical, marked with his bold claims of healing the sick through the power of faith and prayer. He was a master showman. He used commanding presence and conviction to draw on large, cl- large crowds. Here's... Uh, Jack Coe, Herald of Healing. I'd like to find the name and address of it. So I could give it to you. She lives on Thomason Street. Is she doxing someone right now? Here in Philadelphia. I don't find the address right now, but I can give it to you. Belong to the Catholic Church. God doesn't only heal one denomination, but God heals everybody that comes to him and believes in him. The Lord, the Lord say amen. I was in a meeting in Lubbock, Texas. Sister Stella Zimmerman was dying in the pre-hospital. Take the names down. In Leveland, Texas. She had a seven-pound tumor. She had a cancer. Her appendix had ruptured and bursted. Gangrene had set in. She was paralyzed, clear to her neck. 
Her daughter was one of the nurses at Dupree Hospital. Her daughter belonged to the Baptist Church. Mrs. Zimmerman belonged to the Church of Christ. Dr. Dupree said there was nothing he could do for her. Told the daughter they might as well take their mother home that their mother was going to die. I laid my hands on her and began to pray. I want to tell you the word of God said on I could not see and oh, oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love the way he said again Healing began and end in the Bible. Yeah. Healing begins away over in Genesis 20 and 17. And runs all the way through the Bible like a scarlet thread from cover to cover. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, you find Jesus saving, you find Jesus healing the sick. There's just as much healing the sick as there is salvation of souls. Everywhere you find Jesus saving souls, you find him opening the eyes of the blind, cleansing the leopard, causing the lame to leap for joy, healing all manner of diseases. <laughs> Do you believe that? Say amen. I love the I love the revival growl. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so Jack Coe um boy had some controversies. <laughs> His most notorious scandal came in nineteen fifty six when he was arrested in Miami, Florida for practicing medicine without a license. <laughs> ah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is after he told the parents of a three year old boy that he had healed their son of polio, <clears throat> encouraging them to stop the child's medical treatment. Fucking asshole. Yeah. Case ended without a conviction. But alas, it left a lasting stain on his reputation. Fucking dickhead. Yeah. Yeah. Despite the legal troubles, Coe's influence in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements were undeniable. He was a pioneering force in what would become the widespread practice of faith healing within American evangelicalism. Coe's life was cut short when he died in 1956 at the age of 38 due to polio. His <laughs> <laughs> mm. death is seen by some as divine retribution. See, okay. This is... Oh, he was born in 1918, but this is reminding me of um, John Brinkley, the guy who went around like implanting goat testicles in people, telling them yeah. he's going to help them. He started out pretending to be a Quaker doctor, traveling around oh, like giving out his cures. So there is sort of this like con man slash fake doctor thing that oh yeah like happens again and again that I could see very easily being swept up into like also, also preacher yeah because that's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the role of like a traveling showman exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, next, another faith healer, Oral Roberts. He was a towering figure in the American Pentecostal movement and a pioneer of televangelism. And another guy whose life was filled with as much controversy as it was the power of Jesus. Born in 1918, also in Ada, Oklahoma, Roberts rose from humble beginnings to establish one of the most influential Christian empires of the 20th century. You might know him uh, from Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma which is perhaps his most enduring legacy. Founded in 1963, the university was a physical manifestation of Robert's vision for a comprehensive Christian education. It wasn't just uh, that aspect that caught people's attention, though. It was also the financial scandals and allegations of misuse of funds mm -hmm. uh, that often took center stage. Critics accused Roberts of using university and ministry funds for personal gain, though fervent supporters dismissed these claims as misunderstandings or just fabrications by haters. 
One of Robert's most inf infamous controversies involved a claim he made in 1987 that God would, quote, call him home if he did not raise $8 million for ORU's medical scholarship program. <laughs> if you don't give me money, I'm going to die. God's going to kill me if you don't give me $8 million. He's the original GoFundMe scammer. God's going to call me home if you don't join our Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that not a good Patreon plug? <laughs> no, I don't think it is. It is very silly, though. <laughs> um, Did it work? Did he get the $8 million? Eventually, Roberts announced that the goal had been met, thanks in part to a hefty donation from a dog track owner of all. That's stores. okay. Not <laughs> sketchy at all. Yeah, uh, many of the faithful were left scratching their heads, questioning the ethics of all that. <laughs> Another aspect that drew criticism was Robert's teaching on seed faith, a concept that encourages followers to donate money with the promise of future financial blessings from God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just got to invest a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, critics argued this preyed on the vulnerable. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> it's... Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. No, no, not dude. really. No, it's it's because it is preying on like when you're invoking the power of God. It, it, you're right. When you're essentially we're talking about tent revivals, so we're talking about people yeah. in a highly emotional. When, like when you're invoking the fear of death, that's yeah. It's a powerful. It's a powerful con. You know. Ah. God will strike me down in this church right now if you do not put money into this hat. Yeah. Yeah. And Oral Roberts, he, he started with these massive tents. You know, he started with smaller tents, but they turned into massive tents. And then, because he lasted, he didn't die young. He died pretty fucking old. He made the transition into televangelism. Mm, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he was he was one of the dudes that transitioned the whole thing into going from the tent, the traveling tent, which yep. was, you know, made easier by the network of trains and stuff like that into, you know... Getting around even easier, right? Yeah, well, the airwaves. Now the tent is in your pocket exactly. in your living room. It's no, uh, it's it's no substitute though. I will say that not at all. So or substitute. What's this? Oral Roberts classic sermons. Or, the fourth man. The king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was in the hair of their heads seen, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Like a diamond on a velvet couch, the city of Jerusalem situated in the exact geographical center of the earth. It was the city of God, the great king. Far away to the south and east of Jerusalem was another city, the, the greatest of pride and skill of man hath ever built. Babylon, fabulous, mighty Babylon. The world still thinks and talks about Babylon today. I'm going to sample the fuck out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so who's your who's your favorite so far? Oh, I couldn't find a good one of Amy preaching. She was in terms of like listening to them. Billy Sunday, yeah, likewise, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. He's he's just he's got it. Yeah, he sounds like Foghorn Leghorn, <laughs> and I like that. He sounds like a bothered Foghorn Leghorn. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Amy Semple McPherson and Oral Roberts were pioneers in the transition from revival tent to the megachurch and televangelism. That's a whole thing, whole fucking thing. This is all such a ridiculously huge topic that I didn't realize when I decided to do this. I want to take, I, we'll, we will save that for another day. I want to take a look at the, some of the small time tent revivals still happening in America. 
Mm. But first, I want to mention Marjo Gortner. <laughs> These names. Do you know anything about Marjo? No. You will like Marjo. So, Marjo Gortner is not like the other people we've talked about. Was there a documentary made about this there person? There sure was. Okay. In the 1970s. So, born in 1944 in a family. I am aware. Yeah, in a family, into a family steeped in Pentecostal preaching. Marjo was trotted out as a child evangelist by the age of four. The name Marjo is a blend of Mary and Joseph, which should tell you something. Uh, he was a prodigy. Uh, he was a prodigy on the revival circuit. His youth and fiery preaching, drawing crowds and dollars in equal measure, because he was a child, mm-hmm. right? Marjo. He eventually, when he he, by the time he reached his late teens, he was like a superstar in the in the scene. Yeah. And uh, then he quit because he was now a young man and he could fuck off from his parents' influence and shit. And he revealed to people they talked to that the whole thing was a fucking con. All the faith healing shit was a fucking con. And all, you know. But then in the early 1970s, Marjo decided he needed to do something about this. So he uh, hired a documentary crew to follow him on a comeback revival tour and film the whole thing, do all the bits, all the fucking faith healing, all the tricks, and talk about what he's doing to the crew and just make a documentary exposing how all of this shit works, which is fucking cool as hell. The resulting film, Marjo from 1972, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary and blew the lid off the industry uh, and also showcased Marjo as the charismatic fucking performer that he was. But let's take a listen to Marjo Gortner exposing evangelists. And it's this going to start with him actually doing the, the preaching bit and then he's going to talk about what he's doing. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I just want to mention, I told you tonight about my testimony. I have a record album here that has recorded messages of when I was four, six, and eight years old. Now listen, if you don't have this, you should definitely get it because a lot of people, they say, what could a little child say? There's a message on here, hell with the lid off that there's been literally thousands of people who have been saved by just hearing this message. This, this is a business, and you know, you don't, you don't get meetings or you don't get booked back unless you have a gimmick. Or as the, the evangelists say, it's a, it's a, a ministry. Like the, it's incredible. They'll say, oh, brother so-and-so, he's got the ministry of laying on of hands, or he's got the ministry of prophecy. But that's a gimmick, and the guys that have the gimmicks get the big meetings and do good. And I mean, I used one time, I had a thing where there's a special kind of ink you can buy and you put it on and with perspiration when the salt starts to come out and you start to perspire, uh, it'll turn red. And so I painted a cross, you know, I just did a cross like this in my head. And while I was preaching, uh, the cross started to show immediately. People started nudging each other, you know, and of course it started, it went away, I think, after a while, only lasted so long where I wiped away, I don't remember. But afterwards, I mean, like I had that whole audience, I had one of the biggest meetings that I've ever had because they saw that cross and said, oh, Brother Marge, while you were preaching tonight, the cross was over your head. I mean, that was convinced them, you know, that it was really very, very real and it made it very easy for me to uh, take offerings and, and receive money. Yeah. You don't draw attention to it. You don't make it a part of your bit. It's just a thing that happens that the preacher never mentions anything. And it happens in this, you know, highly charged situation Yeah. where the defenses are down already. It's the same thing with like, you know, Guy Ballard with the like hearing the music from the skating rink next door and stopping everything and saying, can you hear the fucking divine trumpets and shit? 
Right. Which it's also very interesting to note that like all the I am shit happened after Amy McPherson, after all this shit. There's nothing new with any of their bits. Mm-hmm. They were just virtuoso. Imagine if they had just done the Christian thing. Why didn't they just do the Christian thing? It's not as original, maybe? I don't know. Oh, they got way more money. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> they got fucking tens of millions. Yeah. Anyway. So how is the revival tent doing now? We know all about the mega churches, you know, we'll talk about Billy Graham and televangelism some other time. It serves its own fucking thing. So in the nooks and crannies of America, from rural backyards to urban warehouses, small time revivalists are still setting up shop. They're not pulling in the thousands that Billy Graham or Oral Roberts did. Well, except for a couple will show off. But they're doing like there's a lot of people still doing the old school camp meetings and shit. Yeah. Not just Pentecostals, but also, you know, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, all the shit. And also social media and live streaming have become new revival tent flaps to invite the curious, the faithful, and the skeptics alike. A preacher in Kentucky might only have a congregation of 50 in a barn, but the message could, could reach thousands online. Uh, except no, most people don't give a fuck, though. That's the thing. There's so many. Like, Christian YouTube is its own fucking thing. I had no idea. It's a whole other side of the world that I was not aware of. Oh, it's out there. It's crazy. It's... I mean, and to the people like listen uh, that are thinking like, how could you guys not be aware of this? Like, honestly, we're from New England. Like that is literally like, yo, we're from New England. Like this is, it's a different relationship with Christianity than the rest of the country has. It just honestly is. Yes. You know, which is so strange. I guess maybe it's the Catholic thing, but like, I get that's a big part of it in Rhode Island. Like the Catholic shit is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like I know Catholicism is present as fuck. Right. Where it's not in a lot of these, in a lot of the other states. And there's not a lot of Catholic YouTube that isn't like, well, there is, but it's not as energetic. Yeah. <laughs> so Meanwhile, the Jews have Abby Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> and Ben Shapiro too, but you know. Abby has better tits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Leave that in. <laughs> Everyone knows it's true. I know. I, I, I had to. <laughs> hey, Ben thinks so, too. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, and there's also an eclectic mix of theologies and practices in modern revival, too. Some of them are rooted in Pentecostal fervor, speaking in tongues and faith healing. Others might blend pros- prosperity gospel shit, promising wealth and success as signs of divine favor. And it's also a lot of new school Christian mysticism in this shit, too. Um, so I've got some examples of some modern, uh, modern preaching, if you'd like to hear. I would. I would love to. So here's a preacher named Eddie Wyatt in 2017 making a really fucked up joke. I think this dude's a Baptist. I can't either, so I'm just going to be Eddie White for the glory of God tonight. Amen. And I am the pastor of the Happy Valley Baptist Church. And uh, listen, y'all cannot say amen too much. It will not bother me. I have one man in my church, Brother Mike. He runs laps around the building. I'm talking about, I'm talking about our folks get happy. Amen. 
I told them, if y'all don't stay happy, we're going to have to change the name to Grumpy Valley Baptist Church. I'm talking about it, it gets on, that's what we say down at our place. Amen? I'm talking about, we call it snot slinging. I'm talking about it gets on. Hey, is it okay to say snot in Murfreesboro, Tennessee? Amen? I know it is. I got family back here tonight that live right down the road. But uh, uh, one of my men one day, he was uh, he was driving down the road. You ever had the Lord get in the car with you? Had the Holy Ghost just ride to work with you? Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about it just get real. He was listening to one of the Clark CDs, and I mean, just got happy in Jesus, and he was just shouting and beating the steering wheel, and he didn't realize it, but the light had turned red in front of him, and he rear-ended this guy. I mean, smacked him, and he looked through the back window of the car, and the guy's head's about that big around. He said, oh, Lord, here I was just praising you. Now I've hit somebody in the rear end. What am I going to do? This guy is humongous. He's fixing to kill me, and sure enough, the car door opened, and a little dwarf about that high <laughs> jumped out. He comes storming back to the car and tapped on the fellow from my church's window. And he rolled down the window and the little dwarf said, I'm not happy. <laughs> and the guy from church just looked at him and kind of sniggered and he said, well, which one are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, what's really funny is like, that's not an original bit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I've heard that fucking joke before. <laughs> not even original material. He's just telling a lie about his <clears throat> fucking church. Yeah. Also, like, I don't know. I heard that and I was just like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> it's just, just like, you're just going to start off like that? Yeah. So that's just, here's another 2017 example from a guy named Tony Shirley. I mean, it, some of the folks at the Clark saw me jump, and they started laughing at me because I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. But I liked it after my heart stopped palpitating. I liked it real good. Praise God. Grew up in Kentucky. Got any Kentucky people in here? I thought I felt the Holy Ghost. Does that make you Wildcat fans? That's too... We got two hands raised to wave back here. Now, you better do that during the preaching, too, sister, all right? Don't just leave me hanging there. But I grew up in uh, Kentucky, but I've been in North Carolina now 23 years. Moved there to help start a Christian school. I was uh, not even called a priest. Never had heard of a Christian school where I grew up, a little bitty town in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky, a little small church. Never had heard of Christian school or Christian college or any of that. Went to Western Kentucky to be a school teacher. And a math teacher, any math lovers, say amen if you like math. How many of you hate math? Well, we hate y'all. Just so you know. <laughs> it's stand up comedy. It, it literally is. Yeah, yeah. it's fucking stand up comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good at it, too. Yeah, that guy's good at it. Yeah. Actually, they're both kind of good at it. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a fucking trailer for an upcoming revival tent in Florida. Coming to Bellevue, Florida. Wow. If there was a place that you could go to experience God, not just about singing or a preacher, but an encounter with Him, His presence, His power where worship is sincere and miracles happen, people are getting baptized and lives are changed. That's the purpose of the Jesus Temple. Wow. Bible. And soon it's coming to you. We want you to have that opportunity to experience him. We've seen him move for thousands around the nation. The production value is fantastic on this trailer, by the way. I imagine you don't need another production. You need his presence. 
And so we partnered with area churches to get outside of the box and make Jesus the only agenda. In this atmosphere, lives can be changed. And I really believe if you come with <laughs> hunger and you come with faith, there is no limit to what God can do. This will truly be the greatest revival our city has ever seen. So please come, bring your friends, bring your family, and let's see what God will do. I looked up some videos of the Jesus Tent Revival. It's not nearly as fucking impressive as <laughs> Taylor would make it sound, but... No, of course not. Great trailer, though. So here's a clip from Bill and Gloria Gaither's Tent Revival Homecoming. Uh, and it's going to showcase like a bunch of different like musical pieces performed at this big tent at like the Billy Graham Library or some bullshit. Graham one day I said Bill when you get to heaven you're going to be out of a job but Bev and I won't we're going to go on singing he said well when I get to heaven I'm going to sing like Bev Shea I said it'll take heaven to do that that's for sure they're in like the lighting's super nice place is huge everyone's in these like old-timey outfits and shit it's like the beautiful singing it's like you can see how it's it's a a powerful thing yeah yeah now none of that shit was the pentecostal stuff though that pentecostal shit has gotten fucking insane this is uh yeah okay so this is from 2016 the old-fashioned mantle pastor donnie short and associate austin burke so what happens visually which i gotta describe first is the super old preacher gets more and more intense until he falls over backwards and the young associate pastor picks up the mic like as he's falling and he's like the old dude and this dude is old he's like old old Uh uh-huh he falls and he's caught and without missing a beat the associate pastor the young guy just picks up the mic like as the dude's falling from his hands and just keeps going and just fucking rips it it's wild and you're not gonna understand a goddamn word they're saying (laughs) oh boy whoa he won't leave him alone let there be someone let me rise up with he falls Oh, not quite. He's getting ready. Holy shit! 
Pentecostal's just wild, dude. It gets mm. it gets weird. Yeah. So wow. Here's here's a clip of Kenneth. That was delightful, by the way. I know, I know. Here's a clip of Kenneth Hagen inciting his whole congregation into fits of insane laughter. He's literally just like swishing his hand at people and they're falling down and people are just like bursting into fits of laughter. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Crazy shit, dude. Crazy shit. And I know you, you want to hear it speaking. Here's this dude. Rodney Howard Brown, Tongues of Fire, Acts 2, 14. <laughs> Sir, that's not a language. I liked it, though. I know. I do, too. Like, now, okay. Here's something called Passion 2024. This is a tent, sort of. It's a permanent tent. It's like one of those, you know, metal tents. But it's like open air, right? Mm-hmm. Giant. There's like, there's 50,000 people in here. 50,000. This, like, just happened. The chump with the mic is uh, some fuckboy doing uh, the Book of Revelations. And the video is titled, That Moment During Worship at Passion 2024. Agnes Day, Worthy is the Lamb. The lighting display is, like, insane. It's like a, it's like Madison Square fucking garden in here. And like when that many people are singing at once in a choir, you feel it. Yes, yes, yes. Like when you're in that room actually there, yeah. that's a very powerful thing. Ah, uh, yes. Like 50 fucking thousand people. It's a spectacle, all right. And how could you not feel like so tiny, but also so like close to a whole bunch of people at once? Well, exactly. like angelic music is playing. It mechanically reinforces it, the, the message of the, of the preaching. All right, where is this fuck boy? In his goddamn Nikes. Uh, 
I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And the hair on his head was white like wool, <laughs> as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing He's fucking fire. sitting on the and edge of the stage like reading this off his fucking phone. No, that's cringy. Like dude, it, this is all so cringy. Oh, and the black right t-shirt. Yeah, dude. Skinny jeans. Are those skinny jeans? No, no. Okay. And his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, <laughs> this I fell like the on as though dead. That is not how you read the book of Revelation, sir. I like it. Really? Well, I mean, I don't like it. I'm entertained by it. I, that's just not... <laughs> the, I mean, There's like, a difference. There is a difference. I'm just saying, theatrically, that's the wrong tone for Revelations. It's That's not the part of the book about God's love. That's the part of the book about the weirdness, the weirdness of God, you know? It doesn't inspire tears mm -hmm. necessarily. It inspires awe or fear or the encounter with the alien. I'm just saying he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's just a fuck boy. Now, here's another clip from that same I fell at his feet. I fell at his feet. He put his well, right hand out to me. He pulled a two-edged sword out of his mouth. <laughs> Shut up. But yeah, no, like, I don't give a fuck what you believe. Like, you sing a song about essentially the beauty of God in the world with 50,000 fucking people, you will feel the spirit of God. That is the spirit of God, right? Like, that is, that's what it is. It is 50,000 people singing. It's that experience of unity. Yeah. Of love and of cohesion and being part of something greater. That's what it, it's not, that's what it is. You right. know? So, of course, conversions happen. And, of course, that's a means of converting people and shit because that it, it it's mechanically reinforces everything that they're talking about. But then, so, I think revival preaching, charismatic Christianity, whatever you want to call it, is really fucking interesting for a few reasons. Especially because where do you draw the line between the real power of God and American bullshittery? Because that line is there, even if it's fuzzy. And all of the, in all of these clips, all these tents and buildings, you, yeah, unequivocally, you can find... God there. Well, maybe not one or two. Like, uh, the old dude speaking in tongues was ridiculous. But no, that that is God, though. That is it. That's humanity. That old dude speaking in fucking tongues is humanity. Yes. Right? Even then, it's this thing that shocks you out of normal reality. It is mysticism. It is divine madness. When someone does that, what someone does with that once they induce that state is something else, right? That's a different question. You know, like Amy McPherson seems like a really interesting fucking person. When she died, she was worth like 10 or 14 grand. That's it. Overdosed at sleeping pills at 53. You know what? I'm going to give it to her. She actually had the spirit of God in her. Fuck boy in the white Nikes crying at the book of Revelations. Not so much. But I think separated from the toxicity of American charismatic Protestantism, which is fucking toxic. It's a toxic religion. The revival serves a sort of necessary function in society. Safe divine madness with your fucking neighbors. It's literally the same reason people turn spiritual after spending time in the music festival circuit. It doesn't have fuck all to do with how heady the jams are. Right. Sorry. Uh, it's the communal experience of the divine. 
which people yeah. that attribute all this baggage to, what does that even mean? You know, the experience of Especially the Especially if they're rolling. Well, well, yeah. The festival. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Definitely. yeah. Which is just fucking overloads of serotonin, which you can also induce in other ways. Uh-huh. Chanting, singing, fucking lights. Um, even just the words you're using, you know? So, like, people ask, like, what, you know... What does that even mean, the experience of the Spirit of God? Where is he? You mean this gooner babbling, this charlatan, whatever. No, it's, it is the experience of divine madness with a group of your peers. It breaks down your barriers. It allows for vulnerability and increased trust within the community. The experience of love and unity with your brothers and sisters is as close to the name of God as you will ever get. And yet, it's still only a reflection. And as an imperfect reflection, as we have seen time and time and time and time again on this show, when you induce a mystic state, you can get people wrapped up and then tack on other things to that experience and connect them by association. Build the wall, hate the gaze, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? That's where the danger is. And I, I don't know, like, you know, maybe just like have more live music shows that like actually mean something and people fucking dance at. Maybe that's the thing. <laughs> you know? You need an outlet for that. Even Whether or not you believe in God, you still got to get down and dance and like open yourself up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because I liked that earlier, the the thing about how you can't have holiness and suppression at the same time, because it's you like, can't. what is a whole? It's like, an, it's an opening, you know? Well, don't, so don't do those weird language games that don't actually mean anything. <laughs> you know, what is the opposite of like something being suppressed is something being open. True. So like this idea of the Holy Spirit is you have to open yourself up to it. You cannot experience the divine and experience holiness while at the same time being shut off from it it's true now i think that there's a lot of christianity that does in fact suppress things Uh, yeah instead of being open about them one thing i've always appreciated about um charismatic christianity is they do talk about bad shit a lot of times they're right i mean there's like there's you know i'm not fucking letting anybody off but like there is this mechanism within it that like you can talk about all the drugs you did before you got saved you know what i mean Mm -hmm. there's a mechanism in there now i don't you know maybe just keep doing drugs it's fine um not you know not the bad ones don't do heroin (laughs) i don't know but like yeah it's an interesting fucking phenomenon um again i bit off way more than i could chew with this one but I just wanted to take a look at like some examples of preachers. I found it very, very interesting. Yeah. What do you think about the Five of Swords? I'm really struggling with it, actually. I I think it refers to the breaking down of psychic sensors, of um, of the experience of the preacher using words and using information to to break down people's um psychic sensors mm-hmm. and induce conversion it's the 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 gebera nature the the sphere of gebera in yetzera yeah in, in air uh it's forceful it's destructive it's meant to be right it's also it's also a place people go when they are defeated yep and where they're preyed upon mm-hmm. and where you know they go looking for that experience of unity and you know community uh, and they get that, but they also get wrapped up in someone else's scheme. Yeah. You know, it can definitely, the five of swords could definitely refer to the breaking of individual will by subsumation within a church. Mm-hmm. It could also refer to the breaking of individual will through speaking in tongues. I think throughout all of it, there's a, 
sense of the whatever power is there overwhelming uh the individual mind yes nobody walks away from it unscathed yeah absolutely and to me that's it's kind of a weird card for this but i think that that's where i would fit it in yeah i can see that to me i think it speaks to just like the it's where you go when you're defeated to get saved admitting defeat in the spirit of the lord yeah the lord jesus i want to talk about jesus i want to talk about the gangarine the gangarine yes (laughs) love how he said it it's great love how he talks i know i I fucking love the the how preachers talk yeah (laughs) fucking do i don't care uh all right well that does it for us today That'll do her. We do have a Patreon. Yeah, you can donate some money to our fucking cause, too. Um, It will not impact whether or not we live or die. It but will, it will not. It will impact the quality of our life. It will. And it will impact the quality of the show. It won't heal you. No. It might be bad for you. <laughs> if I'm being honest, which I need to be, because Jesus is watching, it might be terrible for you. In fact, I hope it is. but we would still appreciate it you will get access to our bonus series the corkboard bazaar our patron discord server i am slacking on all aspects of life but we are doing a twin peaks watch along starting very soon within oh god i don't know if i'm prepared mentally but i can do it you can fucking do it i guess you're fine yeah i am fine i'm just deeply impacted by the things that i watch Get over it. <laughs> I said I was doing it, so I'm doing it. Yeah. I have to. Even if I am in the five of swords right now. Yes. What are you going to do? What you going to do? What are you going to do? Watch Twin Peaks, I guess. It's usually what I do. Fuck it. Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> you get access to all that. $5 a month. Patreon.com slash Nonsense Bazaar. Follow us on all the social media you can find us at. You know what to do. Subscribe, tell your friends. Leave us a rating and review, please. It really helps the show, especially as... Social media itself gets more and more fractured. It gets harder and harder to promote, and the ratings and reviews uh, really help. They so, sure do. Yeah. And I like reading them. I will not read them, so don't worry about that. I can't do it. It fills me with dread and anxiety and fear. <laughs> it's fine. Even the negative ones, it's fine. You have no idea. I see you might be deeply impacted by the things you watch. I am. This whole thing is com- is a complete fabrication. It's all bravado with me. Yeah. <laughs> The most cowardly man in the world. Inside, I am just a soft, squishy. Sure. I'm a fucking coward. It's fine. What are you going to do? What you going to do? Anyway, yeah, you can call me a coward in review, too, if you want. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Please don't. Just please leave us a review and make it a five-star one. Yeah, I don't care what the fuck you say I about me as long as you do that. All right. Take care of yourselves, guys. Be well out there. And, uh, yeah, look after yourself. Peace. Peace. Peace.